0: I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology. And in this week's episode of the podcast, I'm talking with Li Hu and Huang Wenjing of Open Architecture, who are talking to us from their studio in Beijing. thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you today.
1: Thank you, Susie. It's a pleasure for us. Thank you for the invitation.
0: It's my pleasure. So I I wanted to start by um, discussing your arrival into architecture, your practice as architects. Do you remember the first moment that you first decided that that was what you wanted to study and what you wanted to do, do you have any memory of that specific decision or was it a slow process?
2: I think maybe when Jing's more clear, um, become your architect earlier, I guess. Um, I was not always quite clear. I, I, maybe I, you know, I terribly have a bad memory problem, but um, um, I wasn't sure um, what exactly. Uh, you know, my, my father and my parents are both doctors, so my my dad wanted me to become a doctor, which I clearly rejected that option. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I had always been interested in biology. Um, so, but I think before entering college, I was I vaguely had um, um, the illusion that architects is some job that you'll be very proud of, you know, like realizing there's a work that you've done, a building standing there, is something you might be very proud of. So I always thought that's an interesting thing to do. Um, but I had a doubt uh, even entering college uh, into that subject. Um, but perhaps in the middle of the college, I was sure that um, maybe I could do it. <laughs> Um, but it takes time to really understand what it is and that understanding is constantly evolving for me.
1: Uh, I guess for me, um, I didn't have as much doubt as I had after I started architecture school. Um, when I was younger, sometimes, you know, when kids were asked by teachers, what do you want to do in the future? Sometimes I wrote artists. Sometimes I wrote scientists. I think both were kind of sort of laughed at politely. It was too big. Uh, So by the time when I was considering major for college, I think architecture seemed to me was the perfect combination of um, technology and art and all that. Both are very interesting to me. Um, But I would say the first, few years, you know, maybe a couple years and three years of the college undergraduate study was pretty hard to me. Um, you know, architecture all of a sudden, um, it touches upon so many issues. And, you know, we, uh, we were trained in China and our younger education was very rigorous and was um, quite test driven. So all of a sudden in the field of architecture, I think there was quite a moment, uh, a period of time that I felt very lost. And um, you know, the moment I felt like I gained the confidence, it's very strangely is when I started at Princeton doing my graduate study. And I realized that a lot of my fellow uh, classmates, they were very inspiring. Um, when talking, you know, uh, architectural discourse, it was eye-opening experience for me. But when when designing and drawing and presenting ideas, I felt much more confident. I think the undergraduate training we had laid a great foundation. And then the training in graduate school in the US, it was more of um, a training the mind, opening of the, her, uh, the mind and broadening of the horizon. The two combined together, I think, now I look back, was um, very beneficial to me personally.
0: Mm, that's really interesting. I, uh, I I will come back to your uh, time in the US and the education that you had there in a moment, but I wanted to first ask you, did you both grow up in Beijing? And uh, And do you remember having any say so inspirations or any role models in, in the field of architecture when you were growing up?
1: We didn't grow up in Beijing. Uh, we came from different towns, different cities and provinces, uh, but we, our undergraduate university was in Beijing and that's where we met. And I would say maybe the best role model is the founder the founder couple of our university, of our architecture school at Tsinghua, um, both were trained uh, in the U.S. They were the first generation of architects who were educated in the U.S. and came back to China, um, and then they really started the modern architecture education in China.
0: Mm.
2: Well, I, 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 I don't think we have any role model growing up. I mean, if you're talking about the time before you stud, study the architecture. Um, in fact, even we are in architecture studies those years in the early nineties, um, architects is not quite a... In, in China um, was never quite a, a, any um, concept of individual practice. So, you know, it's a... You, you rarely heard of any architect as a profession.
1: As an
2: individual. As an individual. Um, so I think um, before you get to know the world, um, I, I, I can't say there was any role model before you understand was architecture. Um,
1: Except for your professors, You immediately No, no, before college.
2: Before college, But yeah. after college, of course, um, then is a the journey that the discovering of more, things related inside, outside architecture, and, and there's often new um, interesting persons figures that uh, you wanted to know more, uh, role models or not, uh, you know, but the thing is, what's interesting about architecture is that it touches upon so many different things. Um, that's what interests me the most, um, you know, uh, literature, art. Uh, science, engineering, you know, anything that it's hard to find um, um, clear definition of boundaries. And um, and that is for me, the role model could well be a poet or a painter, you know, their life experience. For me, very important to know.
0: Right. Mm. That's a lovely description, actually. Uh, I, you've both alluded to the fact that you studied in the US and I believe that was your postgraduate studies. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to hear about what your experiences were like studying there and working there and, and perhaps also then bringing that education and that experience uh, back to China because I'm imagining, please correct me if I'm wrong, that a postgraduate education in architecture in the US is a very Western centric approach to architecture. And and I'm, I'm curious to know how relevant that is within contemporary China. So maybe if you could talk a little bit about that experience and what you learnt and, and how that sort of then translated into what you're doing now being based in Beijing. Uh,
1: okay, I'll, I'll speak a little and Lee will pick up. Um, I think when you were at the when we were at the moment graduating from China, um, when you are at the moment you don't know uh, what that moment meant in history. Now looking back, um, almost thirty years passed, and I started to realize that we were, we belong to a lucky generation that stand on the threshold of transformation, and we were probably the. Uh, at the beginning of um, um, many students going, the trend of many Chinese students go, pursuing graduate st- study overseas, we were the earlier ones, and that experience, I would say, it was both a culture shock and very, um, very much diff- very, very different from the education we received in China and the subsequent uh, working experience after education um, was the beginning of our professional career. And that laid the foundation of how we look at architecture and how we understand this profession and the standard we uphold until now. So I would say it's the influence is profound. And of course being Chinese and that's, the part that nobody can take away no matter how long we worked in, outside. So coming back to China and combining these two aspects together, I think it's um, the, the uh, underlining tone of our um, profession and how we look at things, and how, even how we look at the world.
2: I would like to talk a bit about um, my graduate studies at uh, Rice University uh, back in 96. Um, For me, that was a very important um, moment, um, although it was short, only a year and a half. But I was uh, lucky to um, study under a few um, very important figures, uh, the Dean Lars Larab you know, who belongs to the nineteen sixty eight generation, the Beatles generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and his um, you know he he's um, his spirit um resonated in the whole school, which is about seeking the sense of freedom in thought. Um, that fits me Perfectly, you know, I, you know, I was chosen, I think I was lucky to choose Rice to one 2 because I, 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 I applied 10 different universities, 10 different programs, I got in all 10 and I chose Rice in the end, um, of course, mainly because they gave me full scholarship, which is very generous, but I think it was, you know, it's a lucky choice in the end. Um, the reason being that growing up, I was always a kid that questioned things, you know. Not rebellious but I just question things. You know, question what I see, I don't easily believe anything. Um but Rice gave me a perfect environment to question and to explore. So Lars is a perfect leader. And then i study under Bruce mouth who was a great thinker, not just simply a designer, but more a thinker. Um and then I met this great teacher. In film department, you know, I, I spent quite a bit of time last semester in the film theory, filmmaking, which is still in, um, uh, my deep interest today. Up to today, uh, maybe you can see that some kind of influences in our work. Um, but again, the gentleman from UK, you know, who runs away from the. I think he suffered from too much um, pressure from society, you know, all the limits. He found the freedom in Texas.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: Cowboys. <laughs> you know, in Texas, you know, offers something very interesting that, um, you know, the outlaw freedom thinkers um, meeting together and, you know, enjoy their freedom in their work. So the, I think that's the year and a half study rise, you know, I kept, we, we kept all the contacts throughout the years with my professors. It was a very important time to, um, kind of give a little jump shot to, you know, what's already embedded in my heart, <laughs> that kind of free spirit and then yeah. carry that on. You know?
0: That's really interesting. <laughs> I'm just sitting here picturing <laughs> the visual differences between Texas and Beijing. I mean, that's, it <laughs> that seems quite a big yeah. jump.
1: Yeah, I remember first time landed Houston, it was very much a shock. I couldn't see a human being. All buildings were so low. Wide street and empty, all cars.
2: Yeah, but you know, like um, Texas back then, now it's different, you know, those bush countries. But back then, it was, once has the best education, best school in, you know, at one point, UT Austin. You know the Texas Ranger, the most important five figures in theoretical studies, all in Texas, and then in art, Donald Judd, Martha, and and then Lars Larrow came from San Francisco. He brought in the brilliant mind. You know he brought in Louis Kahn. Oh, sorry, early on, but then he brought in um, Rancuhaus, Sanford Quinter, and then um, Bruce Mau. You know this um, this bring. A, big difference um to the school that he basically trying to build you know from the ground up Mm -hmm. was a very interesting moment um but again now it's different i don't know where is the most interesting part now in in making of the architectural (laughs) minds
0: i wonder uh I'm, i'm curious to hear a little bit about uh you know, your return to China, because it's uh, for any of our listeners, perhaps that have not visited, I'm sure that they would still be vaguely aware of how rapidly the country is developing. Uh, And I'm, I'm curious to know upon your return to China from being in the US, I imagine that Beijing would have changed quite a bit in that period of time. And I'd like to hear a little bit about, you know, how it may have changed in that time and, and how you would describe Beijing as a city and maybe how it might differ from other large cities in China, because they're not all the same. I sadly have not visited many large cities, but I have been to Beijing and Shanghai and a few others. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. Sure.
2: Um, you know, we've been living on Beijing for a long time, and uh, Beijing is a city um, Uniquely different from other cities in China, um, I think has a it has a very deep sophistication um, sophistication in terms of um, people. Um, you know, it's probably have gathered um, the majority of the Chinese artists uh, in all different fields in the conventional art, film, literature. Um, Designers as well, scientists as well. So I think um, people is always the most important part of a city. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just what they look like, but who lives there. They make a difference. Um, mm-hmm. And then Beijing is not a comfortable city, unlike Shanghai and Hong Kong, in, in terms right. in, in of lifestyle and convenience. Um, but it's a city packed um, with. Um, Interesting things to be discovered, and frictions that happens all the time. I always believe a place with, with frictions, with problems, um, is a place where you make art.
1: What's because
2: because it stimulates you to force you to think to figure things out. Um, Beijing also is hugely influential in the urbanism um, and changes radical changes in China because people are always trying to uh, make their, their own city model after Beijing in one way or the other. Um, and Beijing also is a place where you see the very old ancient history and the latest thing as well. You know, they're very rich, very poor, um, and it's always under some kind of change. And for us always, China in large is a place of um, experiment, urban experiment urban experiment in terms of not just physical form, but also how things are managed, how things are you know uh, operated, how trash, traffic, uh, bicycles are managed, um, housing, you know how to achieve a balance between all these things. So being in the middle of all this chaos and change um, for us to be an architect is really the perfect place. Um, um, not in terms of having a beautiful, comfortable life, but in terms of put in the center of the problems. Um, I think that for uh, for us probably summarizes Beijing the most. You know, it's a place mm-hmm. of problems, a place of people in art, um, people are thinking, people are trying to, you know, struggling. Um, And it will be pointing to the future, you know, in one way or another, in good way or bad ways, you know, in constant evolution, um, progress, uh, making corrections, self-correcting its issues. Um, And one thing, um, it proves really interesting fact in the last four years is that it kind of magically controlled the pollution. (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> because at one point people were desperate and many of our friends moved away to Shanghai. And then a couple years later, it became really good air quality.
1: Nowadays, yeah. It is amazing. I remember feeling <laughs> extremely desperate looking out the window as if I'm in a milk carton. And then hearing that it took Los Angeles 50 years to, fi- to, to fix the air pollution problem. I was thinking, China where five is the escape?
2: <laughs> no, it's very interesting, you know, because it's all related to architecture, because, you know, for us, city and the architecture are literally one thing. And, mm. and in, on different scales, you start to see all this experiment and proves things are possible that seems impossible we took half a century, can be five years. Yeah.
1: We started our study in Beijing in our university in 1991. So it's exactly 30 years to this year. And in this 30 years, <coughs> there's 10 years we were away, about 10 years, right? 10 years right. a bit more. And this three decades really witnessed so much changes um, happening in the city, but still, you see the juxtaposition and traces of different historical time still visible. So this juxtaposition and fast transformation is all very um, interesting to us as uh, architectural, as architects.
2: I mean, that is not to... Um... I don't want to be misleading that I, I, I deeply love everything here. <laughs> I mean, I love to go to places. You know, we go to New York twice a year still. No, not for the pandemic, but otherwise um, mm. I visit Australia. I love, I love it, you know, okay. um, but um, this is where the trench, where, where we are. <laughs> this is the battleground okay. to, to make things happen. You know, I, I, I think that that's important that you put in the slightly discomfort zone that um, keep you awake, not to fall
1: asleep. That's very important. Yeah. Beijing is not a place easy to live. If I borrow a sentence, we used to say, if you can make through New York, you can make through any cities in the world. And to live in Beijing is not that easy, it's a tough city. So I kind of feel if you can make it through in Beijing, you can make it through in any cities in China.
0: That's such
2: a In a sense, it's a bit like New York City, because New York in, in the States is like a place I either hate or love. There's no second opinion. You hate it or you love it. Um, Beijing's like that. You know, Shanghai is like everybody loves it. It's very sweet. Beijing's not sweet.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I preferred Beijing though, to be honest. I, I felt like it, you know, you were talking about those layers of history and it felt like really the cultural capital of, of the country. You can, you can feel yeah, that even I, as a foreigner who doesn't speak the language. I think you've just described it so perfectly. Um, I'm
2: happy to hear that. I, I do notice clearly the two kinds of people who either love yeah. it, or often the people who are interested in culture, or people just don't like it
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. and
2: they go to Shanghai.
0: Yeah, I was really shocked by how big it is. That is something that I think you can't really fully grasp until you're there and on the ground. Looking at a map of Beijing does not give you any sense of how spread out and how large it is. And I think that was probably the biggest shock to me. Um, But yeah, Yeah. such a fascinating place
2: the speed of moving slowly <laughs> through the traffic make it 10 times bigger.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the next thing to fix. If you can fix the yeah. air pollution, you can fix the traffic.
2: <laughs> yes, I think so. Three years ago, I went to deliver a lecture at um, Amsterdam. <laughs> the I show one slide. Uh, what was it I talk about? I was traveling um, from... Um, From the north of Holland to the south of Holland. I think that journey took about two hours. And I said, you know, I'm still in Beijing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm
1: still inside Beijing, moving somewhere.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) Well, I think that that's such a great segue to my next question, which is about the power of architecture you mentioned this in your manifesto on your website you talk about the power of architecture and i think with power comes responsibility and i would really like for you both to describe what you see your responsibilities are as architects
1: you
2: should go i think this is a perfect question for you for me Well, well you, I, I, I love your sentence that um, with power that comes responsibility. I think that's a very important, the core meaning of the responsibility that you, that you can do something. Um, I, I always um, believe that anything that you build, anything that human makes come from this planet somewhere. Literally, it come from the ground. You know, everything come from the ground we uh, standing on. So I think everything you make, you have to do it very carefully. And the problem of today is that human just make too many things that are absolutely unnecessary and that deserve the chunk of material they took and transform into something else. Either it's a bad piece of product or it's a building or even worse, a city. Um, so the Responsibility of an architect so just gigantic, you know, in terms of its social responsibility, when you make something, are you contributing anything to the social benefits of you know the well-being of the people? If you're making something, are you making a good neighbor to the environment, to the world you're living in? Are you friendly to the plants? and the animals and um, <clears throat> and um, eventually I want to borrow the three aspects of sustainability which is easier for people to understand. Economical as well. Are you making a conscious um, act out of economical concern as well? What are you spending? What are you making in turn? So I think the responsibility of the architects really touch upon everything around us. And so often, people tend to ignore that responsibility you know, they so easily in the media as well that you're just making something beautiful. And I think that is the totally misleading practice of architecture today. Right. Um, you don't just do things just simply sweet and beautiful. I think you have to be very careful. What exactly are you making? Does it carry any meaning? What does it really do? I think that questions um, um, is something in our work, really, in every moment, are we making the right decision? Being an architect in the design process is a constant decision making. You're always making decisions all the time.
1: Mm.
2: And this is a very stressful thing.
1: Right. <laughs> I have to say um, in the past recent few years of becoming more and more, uh, disturbed and concerned, that um, you see, the, as Lee mentioned, the, uh, we're all aware, you know, people like us are very much aware of the climate crisis and impact. Um, my daughter is making a project right now, and, uh, and she's looking at the natural disasters happened this year. In the flood in London, the flood in New York City recently, the flood in China, in Central China, um, in Holland, Germany. You know, the the climate is worsening faster and faster, and which, in fact, require um, all of us human beings act together. But on the other hand, on the contrary, the global politics is moving towards division and the uproaring of nationalism. And that's deeply, deeply troubling to me. I think as human races, we we can only um, confront these challenges collectively and our differences across culture, across nation are much smaller than our similarities as human beings. And our hope remain in our, you know, what we can do. Our vehicle is our architecture, our buildings. So in, you know, in our practice, I think the the most underlying um, urgent desire is through, for me, is through architecture to to forge better communication and better connection, um, connection between people. You know, different people. You know, we we. We use spaces, we consume culture, no different than other people. And um, the architecture can connect us with nature, with our environment, and can connect us with ourselves. So I think I generally hope, you know, through our effort, our, um, what we can do, um, can make some changes, you know, even smaller at a time. Um, but make some changes to this worrying um, reality we face.
0: Mm. That was so beautifully answered. Thank you. Uh, I would really love to talk to both of you about so many of your projects. You've built up a portfolio that is so diverse and so interesting, But. I don't know that we have time to talk about each of them. So I'm going to jump to the Mars case project, um, which I believe was a a small sustainable housing initiative. Um, And I I wanted to perhaps have you talk about the technologies that we used in that, um, I believe it was a prototype and and if it was a self-initiated project or if if you had a client that um, commissioned that, could you talk a bit about that?
2: Yes, um, Ma's case was a um, project we were invited um, to be part of what's called the House Vision. House Vision is an initiative by Ken the Japanese designer Ken Ahara, who started in Japan and we moved that to China. Every time you would invite 10 architect designers and 10 um, enterprise um, large product companies, for instance, that would <clears throat> pair them up. So in that case, we tro- um, and to, the idea is to imagine the future of living. And um, that's something we're very interested in, even though you don't see that much in our portfolio uh, because it's hard, housing is a is a it's kind of separate, very hard to get into in China to do something interesting. But so that's a perfect opportunity for us to um, realize some of the things we've been dreaming about. So we chose the company um, Xiaomi, I don't know if you we heard of it.
1: to collaborate with the
2: company. Yeah. Who would who's be our sponsor. Um, but the idea is to, um, as a prototype, uh, and the reason we call it a prototype, because it's, I think the, uh, the te- technology we uh, imagined in that prototype is not um, yet um, readily or quickly um, uh, made that, uh, to realize that at the moment, but it's definitely something feasible. The idea in that is that a is a product um, where integrate our daily appliances. Mm-hmm. You know, for instance, air purifier, um, refrigerator, mm-hmm. air conditioning, the whole you know cleaning, cooking, all the things that we use in our daily life can be interconnected and having the energy and the matters that um, recycles inside, mm-hmm. um, and that is something we. Um, imagine to be something we could um, um, be taken to cases like Mars that where there's things, there's discussed resources that where you have to rely on very, very, very limited resources to make a living. Um, so I think the prototype that for the Mars case is about um, imagining the ultimate minimum living conditions, spatially and uh, technologically. Mm-hmm. And making it a self-sustainable living cell. Right. And but there's a actually there's a multiple um, uh, thinking behind that. It's not a, it's not simply a project about technology. It's a more a, a weakening call for people to reflect on how we should live today. Right. With what the when Jean just mentioned, the observation of worsening um, environmental issues. <clears throat> How could we think a different way of living to minimize our footprint? Mm -hmm.
1: So the Mars is really a an excuse. uh, It's a
2: speculation, but it's a it's a um, speculated um, limit. You you put you push yourself to that kind of limit to force you to create something to the extreme, you know, extreme solution.
1: Yeah, but the true question, the real question we ask is actually: when humans is already forced to think about um, living on Mars, mm-hmm. isn't it time for us to reflect on our life today, our style of living today? You know how we can live more consciously, more responsibly on this Earth planet instead of going to the Mars.
2: Yeah, that's uh, we were inspired by the important what what's it called the.
1: S-Soto.
2: Richard Soros Sours, uh, Walden Lake, that where he puts him in the hut, you know, for a few months. You know, it's a kind of um, it's a speculative project that raises lots of questions um, that push the boundaries um, both the philosophical level but also the technological levels. Mm-hmm. And even actually, we're still working with Xiaomi on some other project at the moment. Um, I, I, I'm still hopeful that you know, we're always interested in the the things that in between product and the building. Right. And somewhere in between or it's both. It's both a product and a building. Mm-hmm. And that's very beautiful overlapping potential that we make a building like how we make a product. And then we design a product as if we're designing a building. Right. A product become a building.
0: Mm. That's really interesting. And it does beg the question about the amount of time and resources and money that is being spent on establishing life on another planet rather than devoting that to perhaps um, the climate crisis that we're facing here on earth. So I'm, I'm exactly. so happy to hear that you're addressing that. Um, my final question is about what I think is your most recent project, which I believe is still under construction and that is the Chapel of Sound. Um, and it's, it's such an interesting looking project. The location seems quite sort of unique as well. And um, it, it seems to be almost um, an excavation rather than a built work. And, and I would love to hear you talk a bit about the location and if you've had any specific challenges constructing the building where it is and also uh, the design itself, if you could talk a bit about that too.
1: It's interesting you ask the location, because I think that's the most asked question, question uh, I get these days. Everybody's asking, where is that building? (laughs) Uh, It's right on the border, on the northeastern border of Beijing, between Beijing and the Hebei province. Um, The border is actually a stretch of the um the great wall ming dynasty great wall it's a dilapidated uh, ruin but they demarcated uh, the boundary of beijing there and the building is in the valley about and it's about 100 meters 200, away, meters. 200 meters away from the you know the allowed uh, distance from this historic relic um so beyond that, um, there's really no other big landmarks or cities to mark the location. It's really in the mountainous area and at the bottom of the valley. Does that answer the question?
0: Yeah, so I mean, given that it is quite remote, how what sort of challenges have you faced with a, a construction crew and, and actually building something out there? Uh,
1: to say the least, it's not easy to build that building. And when we started, um, I think when you went to look at the site first, there was nothing in the valley and there was not um, even the road that construction vehicle can go through. And you know, our building was made of almost entirely concrete. So at the time, there was not a um, commercial concrete mixing facilities there nearby. Um, so for the project, the client built a smaller a smaller uh, mixing plant with the uh, uh, industries nearby uh, for the project. So uh, the construction was not easy. That's why I took quite long um, measured in Chinese speed. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but I, I I think the speed in the U.S. is not slow at all. But in China, this is quite long. You know, I think we finished this building in four years of time.
2: Construction not four years. Construction two about year, two, two years. years.
1: Yeah, two Good years. Time. The first seven years when uh, the first seven meters of the building went up really really slowly. Um, because the, the builders were trying to get a handle on how to do this complex geometry. But then the second year, they, it went up really fast. Uh, we were lucky to have a master builder who directed the um, construction team. And I think it's marvelous. Now I look at it, I still think it's a miracle in that location mm-hmm. we could build such a complex, um, complicated geometry in concrete and in the way we want it to be.
0: Indeed. And could you tell us a bit about the design and how that came about? Uh, Because it is such an open space. Was that something that was part of the brief from your client or was that really your idea about how the building would be programmed?
1: About the design process. Yeah, Mm. we were actually given quite a an open, uh, open program, brief. open brief. Yeah. Can you talk
2: about okay. briefly with, about the design process? I Somehow, we're always involved in project with very open design brief. There's some some special feature working in China. Maybe just mm. we chose that. Or maybe just <laughs> the, from the client. But I think... It's it a, it's a,
1: probably has to do with your perspective as well, your angle of perspective. We, we <coughs> perceived it this way. The client had a mission. Client wanted an Oh yeah, right, right. right. The client
2: client not only had a mission, but also gave me an image. Do something like this. You know, we never listen to that. (laughs) I wouldn't mention what exactly that is, but it's another architect's famous architect's work. Um, you know, I I believe every site needs something unique to that particular site, that particular mission. Um, well, there is a design brief, which is calling for a concert space, a music space that is outdoor. Right. So in the end, we give them a semi-outdoor, not completely outdoor, but not completely indoor.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's somewhere in between.
1: Right. The
2: ambiguity is the beauty, I think. Um, mm. But the, the design process wasn't short. I think we took a long journey discovering what it could be you can imagine is a very hard site to work on because there was no specific site it was only roughly that region um so we we actually tried um, different locations within a large right. scope of site i uh, i think in the end we moved to the current location yeah. which I- is proved to be the right place you know it's at the is at the bottom of the valley but as actually at the opening of the valley has a beautiful view, but a relatively flatter um, plane where the, um, with our very minimal footprint, we have, you know, this building is almost like something upside down, right? the pyramid shape upside down. So Mm. when it hits the ground, it's a very small foundation Mm -hmm. and that caused minimal disturbance to the site.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And also um, having the storm water, um, the Quick passing by, this undisturbed. Um, but we tried really many different possibilities, and we were looking to different ways of. We uh, were looking for inspirations. So what is an outdoor concert? You know, from the ancient Athens to performance that happened in the cave. Um, also, the origin of the music performing always in you know in the chapels um, in China as well. You know, the music um, always related to also to the Buddhist monk chanting. So um, there's um, uh, unavoidably the spiritual connection as well. You know, when we talk about music, how music started, we even studied the instruments, you know, the what's up the spatial um, profile, you know, inside the instrument, where is the space made for sound. So, and then slowly we come to a clear, direction that we are making a space for sound. That's how I think Susie spotted precisely what it is, excavation. It is excavation from inside out, mm-hmm. carving. is you not know, like a sculpture carving a negative form from a rock, mm-hmm. carving inside out. The carving is is action carving by the sound. Mm-hmm. The performance and the moving the sound. Um, that's why we call it the chapel of sound. It's really for the sound or the made by the sound. It's
1: really a process of giving shape to the sound.
2: Yeah, I I, I must um, make mm-hmm. connection this to my study with Bruce Mao. <laughs> when I was um, taking a um, seminar with Bruce Mao, one day he brought in a book by um, Marshall McLuhan's uh, "Medium is the Massage." And um, I remember reading a sentence that "acoustical space" was a very interesting illustration, and uh, and and it's this interesting, um, mysterious, um, kind of um, unclear what it is, but it's. Perhaps something of very in, into the Eastern philosophy, you know, something that's formless, and something not completely visual, and unlike you know where we have inherited from the Renaissance the making perspectives, everything designed from that visuals. But what's the acoustical space has interested me until I have, we have this commission that said let's try acoustical space, and here it is. Uh, that's our um, experiment for that, mm-hmm. oh. making a space for sound, how sound can shape a space.
0: That's, that's such a great description. And it is also visually quite beautiful. And I hope that I get a chance to visit there in real life sometime in the, in the near future. So thank you so much for your time today. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. And I, I wish that we could talk longer, but um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. So thank you both very much.
1: Thank you Susie, it was very nice talking to you.